I am Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, writing this letter to all those who are followers of Christ. Defend the faith, guard your hearts, and cherish the gift of salvation that was given to you. Be wary of those who are misrepresenting God's word. Our Lord Jesus told us that they will cause division, confusion, and participate in their own destruction. Keep up your guard. Build up your faith by hearing and obeying God's word. Pray in the Spirit and rely on God's love and mercy. Show love and care for those who do not yet know Jesus. Be tender with unbelievers, but not soft on sin. Remember, this life in Christ is the real, unending life. And now to Him who keeps us safe, our amazing Jesus, all glory, majesty, power and authority are His, both now and forevermore. Thinking about well, it's Father's Day. What should I preach on? And I thought, oh, I know. I'm going to preach on judgment on Father's Day. I really didn't do that, but as it turns out, we're in the book of Jude, and of all things, here we are, and it's on Father's Day. So I didn't really plan it that way, but it just worked out that way. We're in a little book called the book of Jude, and it's in the New Testament, and it's right at the end of the New Testament. So. I can understand why people would overlook it maybe, but it's just, it's one chapter, it's 25 verses, not very big, and we're spending four weeks going through the book of Jude together. It's the first time I've ever done this, I've ever taught through Jude, so it's been a lot of fun for me working through this book. And already, well, the overall theme is keeping up your guard, and already we've talked about our great salvation, amazing salvation. We've talked about what are we to guard for? And then today, I want to talk to you about living with the end in mind. Now, we're at Jude verse 14 to verse 19 of Jude chapter 1, an only chapter. And I'm not going to read the whole section, but I'm going to read two verses, and it begins in Jude 14, and we're going to read verses 14 and 15, and listen to what he says. Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against God. I want to talk to you about living with the end in mind. And the first thing this passage actually teaches us is the Bible says that Jesus is coming back again. Jesus is coming for the second time. And in fact, uh, there, there's a lot of Old Testament passages and New Testament passages, hundreds of them, that talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. There are many passages in the Old Testament talk about the first coming of Christ, but also about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And i got to think, those Old Testament guys, as they're sort of explaining about the coming of Jesus, perhaps, probably, they didn't know that there were two comings of Jesus, but they're, in essence, describing what's going to happen in what will be the second coming of Christ. And it may very well be that many of these Old Testament prophets, when they were writing down what the Holy Spirit was telling them to say, must have thought, this makes no sense to me. I don't see how in the world 
all these things can be true with one coming of the Messiah, but they faithfully wrote down everything the Holy Spirit told them to write down because they weren't aware that they were actually describing perhaps two comings of Christ. The last time that you've been on a road trip, and maybe you've gone to a mountainous area, it's not too mountainous in Houston, but maybe you, maybe the Rocky Mountains, and you're, you're headed west, and you're going toward the Rocky Mountains, and there they are, you can see them in the distance, and you're on the road, and maybe there's this huge mountain that's staring you directly in the face. And you are just in awe of the mountain and how beautiful it is and how big it is. And then you get closer and closer and closer to the mountain and you discover, oh my soul, this is not one mountain. This is two mountains. There is a smaller mountain in front of a bigger mountain. And now you can clearly see there's two mountains in front of you, not just one mountain. And whenever you go past it, you say, and there is this valley in between the two mountains. You couldn't see that from a distance. You could only see that close up. And that is exactly what's happening with these prophets in the Old Testament. They couldn't see everything. It looked like one thing, but it was actually two things that they were describing as they talked about the coming of Jesus Christ. And you know what? We live in the valley. We live in the valley between the two mountains. We get to see in the past the first coming of Jesus and what it was about and dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And then we get to see the second mountain, the bigger mountain, where he comes back and the end of everything happens. And we get to live in the in-between. So we have a better perspective than those guys in the Old Testament. Now, the, the guy that was the first that I know of in the Old Testament that prophesied about the coming of Jesus was actually a guy named Enoch. What's amazing is he was only seven generations removed from Adam, and yet God had told him so much. And he is identified for us in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. What in the world does this mean? Well, we go to Hebrews chapter 11, and we understand. Listen to what it says. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Listen, he was a guy that walked with God. Maybe closer, probably closer than anybody else that ever walked with God. He was, a, he was a guy that loved the Lord with all of his heart, and he walked with God. It's as though God was beside him everywhere he went, and he, he, he fellowshiped with God, and he was in communion with God, and it was the most wonderful experience that anyone could have. Here is a guy so close to God, and one day, as they're walking together, God said to him, Enoch, would you like to see where I live? Sure, God, I would love it. And they walked right in to heaven. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an amazing story? And here is Enoch, a guy who loved the Lord, maybe, maybe more than anybody that we know. There's only two people in all the Bible that did not die. Enoch is one, Elijah's the second one. Now, it is Enoch that so early on is given the permission by God, the ability by God to look down through time, and as a prophet, 
He prophesies that when Jesus comes back the second time, he will bring with him thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. Now, who are these holy ones? Is he talking about angels coming back when Jesus comes back? Angels will come back with Jesus? Or is he talking about when Jesus comes back that all these Christ followers who have accepted Jesus, they have died physically, they've gone to be with God in heaven, and they come back with Jesus? Well, the answer is yes. It's both. And in fact, when the Gospels, when you're reading Jesus, his own words, he talks about coming back. And he says, when I come back, I'm going to bring with me a host of angels. They're coming back with me, thousands upon thousands of angels. But then when you get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13 and 14, notice what it says. Brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Now that phrase, fall asleep, simply means to die physically. They die physically and their spirit goes to be with the Lord. I don't want you to be ignorant about what happens to these Christ followers who physically die. I want you to know what is going to happen with them. And I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. It does not mean that when someone we love dies, we are not supposed to grieve. We grieve. You have somebody that you love with all your heart and someone that, that has been such a vital part of your life and they die, their, their body dies. Of course, we're going to grieve. I've grieved for my parents. I've grieved for other loved ones that I've known. And we do grieve. But he says, I want you to grieve in a different way than those who have no hope. Those who have no hope, those who are not Christ followers and they die, it's goodbye. It's goodbye forever. But for those who know Christ as Savior and they die, it's see you later. It's not goodbye forever. It's see you later. And our grief is there, but our grief is different than those who have no hope. So listen to what he says. I don't want you to grieve like those, the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in him. The moment our body dies, we go to be with the Lord. And one day when Jesus comes back, he's bringing all these Christ followers back with him from heaven. I don't know if I'm going to die before Jesus comes. Jesus could come before I die, and that'd be fantastic. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus came before you died and, and Jesus came and the Bible says we'll be transformed immediately and all this is going to happen and it'd be great if, if we would not have to experience death that he just come before we die. And it's possible that before I die, Jesus could come back again. But it's also possible that I will die before Jesus comes back again. Let me tell you what's going to happen when I die. I will never lose consciousness, and neither will you in your death. The very moment that our body dies, our spirit just comes up out of that body and goes immediately to be with Christ. How many seconds it takes for our body to get to heaven? I don't know, but it's not very long. And we come up out of that body totally conscious, totally aware, and we go right through. I am so excited about that thing because I'm thinking I'm going through a wormhole or something. I don't know. I'm going 
right through, and there is going to be Jesus. There is going to be Jesus right there. Amen. That's worth applauding for. And then when we see Jesus, then there's going to be a gathering. God knows who it's going to be. He's going to gather all the people just exactly for you, all the people that you love and people that have died in your family and they're in heaven. And he gathers all these people and friends together and they come and welcome you. Hey, welcome to heaven. And there's going to be a welcoming party for me and a welcoming party for you. So if we never lose consciousness and in a matter of a few seconds we're in front of Jesus and there are all these people we know, death ain't too bad if you, if you ask me. So whichever one it is, whichever one is fine. When we die, go to heaven, and it's before Jesus comes back, we're coming back with Jesus when he comes back to the earth. Angels all around us, all these Christ followers. So the question is, why? If we go to heaven when we die, why in the world is Jesus coming back anyway? What is this whole thing about? Well, I'm glad you've asked this question because Matthew 16, 27, Jesus answered. He said, for the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. Not the only part about that answer of why, but it's a part that's the part we're going to talk about today. He is coming back to judge all people according to their deeds. Acts 17, 31. For God has set a day for judging the world with justice by the one he has appointed. And who is this one he has appointed? And he proved to everyone who this is by raising Jesus from the dead. Jude 15 says, when Jesus is coming back, he's coming back to judge everyone. That Greek word that is translated everyone actually means everyone. Everyone. It's you. He's coming back to judge you and me and every, every, every single one. Everyone who's ever lived, everyone that is alive at that time, he's coming back to judge every single one. But that judgment of those who are Christ followers is different from the judgment of those who are not. So let's talk about it. The first thing I want to talk about is this idea that Christ followers will have our time of judgment before Jesus Christ. And it's described in the Bible as the judgment seat of Christ. That judgment seat, those two words are actually one Greek word, bema, B-E-M-A. We as Christ followers will stand before the bema, before the judgment seat of Christ. Listen to what it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, what's interesting to me is that the bema is a first century word that was used in first century to talk about the Olympics. Did you know Olympics were in first century? That it originated in Greece, and, and it talked about an Olympic kind of environment in which they were running this race, and then they would bring the top winners, the people who came in, I don't know, it's just maybe first place or first, second, third, or whatever it is, they would bring all the winners to the Bema seat. 
The Bema was the place where the winners of the Olympics in that day were rewarded. Rewarded. This isn't a scary judgment. It is a place where those who know Christ as Savior will be rewarded. This is not a place to determine, okay, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? I don't know how many people say, you know, I won't know until I get there. That's a little late if you ask me. I'd want to know ahead of time, wouldn't you? And the Bible says we can. And the Bible says, look, when the moment we accept Jesus as our Savior, we turn from our sins, we turn our heart to Jesus Christ. Lord, I want you to be the Lord of my life. That very moment we pass from death unto life. And this is what Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm not going to be condemned. I'm not going to be condemned not because I'm a pastor or because I've been a, 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 in church all these years. I'm not going to be condemned for only one reason, because Christ died for me and I accepted him as my Savior. And for those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's worth an amen. Amen? That's a worth an amen. Now, so if we are standing before this Bema seat, this judgment seat of Christ, what are we standing there for if we already know we're saved? We are saved by faith, not by works, not by going to church, not by doing good deeds. We're not saved because how good we are. We are not saved by our good deeds. We are not We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ as the only hope of our salvation. But we are rewarded according to our deeds. We're saved by faith, but we are rewarded according to our deeds. So what is the criteria for the rewards? I've had people that have said to me, you should not even preach about rewards. We shouldn't even be thinking about rewards. Well, then why does the Bible talk about it so much? No, I want rewards when I get to heaven because I want to have lived a life that is well done. Don't you? I want to live a life that is well-pleasing to the Lord, and He's the one that keeps bringing up the rewards. Here's what I don't want. I don't want to stand before Jesus Christ and he said, sorry, you got here, but you stunk ever since. Why didn't you do good things? Why didn't you obey me? Why didn't you do what I said for you to do? No, I don't want that. Do you want that? No. He says we are saved by faith, but we are rewarded by our deeds. So what is the criteria? There are several things, not just these three, but I think these are the top three. We will first of all be judged according to how faithful we were with what God gave to us. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust... A trust must prove faithful. The word trust is not a verb, it's a noun. He's not saying we trust God, it's saying He, God, gave us a trust. A trust is something that belongs to God, but which has been loaned to you to use for God. He's given you a trust. So what's a part of the trust? Our trust is, are the gifts 
spiritual gifts that God has given us. They are our abilities, our talents. You have so many talents. You have so many abilities. You're, you're still learning. You're still uncovering them all the days of your life on this earth. All your abilities, all your talents, all your spiritual gifts, all your opportunities, all your finances, all of your time. Every click on the clock is a gift. He's given you time. He's given you opportunities. He's given you money. He's given you talents. And one day, these are all, these are all together your trust. He has given you a trust, and He will hold you accountable for these things. This is the whole story that, of the parable of Jesus, of the, of the parable of the talents. This is what, the, what it means, that He gives to us different talents, different abilities, different parts of the trust, and He holds us accountable for what we did with it. He's not going to hold me accountable for my singing voice. He, whatever comes out of my voice, it ain't talent. But He won't hold me accountable for, my, for what He, not talent He didn't give me. He will only hold me accountable for what he gave to me is my trust. Now, let me tell you something. When I praise him with whatever thing comes out of my mouth, that is a praise to him. He holds me accountable for that. God puts you on this earth to be an influence for Christ, and he puts you in this church to minister and serve others. He gave you talents and abilities and spiritual gifts, and He gave you all this trust for that you would use this trust He gave you, and you would invest it, and you would give it away and help meet the needs of others, and you would care about Him and His acts of love and kindness toward God and others. This is the idea of this trust. And one of the aspects of the trust is that you would serve God and others. You, you would serve your family, you would serve ch in church, you would serve your classmates and work associates, you would, have, you would make an impact in your spheres of influence. And sometimes what we do is we come to church and we just we attend church on Sunday, but we don't do a lick. We just sit there. Oh, I'm so glad other people are serving me at this church, but I'm not going to do anything to anybody else. But part of what God gave you as a trust is service to other people. He didn't, he didn't intend for you to sit here year after year and you don't do anything, no, no service to other people. He didn't intend that. He intended for you to use part of your talents and abilities and spiritual gifts in service to others too. So look... Maybe, maybe you thought, I don't, I don't even know where to serve. I don't even know how to get started. Well, you can go to the Next Step Center. Anytime you wonder, how can I, the answer is the Next Step Center. What is my next step of anything? It's the Next Step Center. And if you went to the Next Step Center and said to someone, could you help me get involved in ministry here? We will guide you in how to do that. And one day we'll be accountable to Christ for what we did with what He gave us, including ministry. There's a second thing. We will be judged according to the purity of our life. 
Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in, in heart, for they will see God. Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4, Who may will ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. How do I stand in the presence of God? How am I with God? It's a pure heart. Part of what we'll be judged about is the purity of our heart. And part of that purity of our heart is, is our integrity, our honesty, our character. It's our sexual obedience. It's our caring for the poor. It, it is our standing for those who are being treated unjustly. It is the purity of our heart. I, I'm going through the book of Isaiah these days, and I've got to tell you, it's Isaiah, wow. It is a strong book, and I've been going through the book of Isaiah, and yesterday as I'm out on my walk around the neighborhood, and uh, I'm trying to get some exercise in, I'm listening to Isaiah, and here is Isaiah, this next chapter, and he is saying, so you think that you, you go to church? He was really saying going to the temple, but I translated it for today. So you, you're going to church, are you? And you're, you're sacrificing to me, but then, then you, you are mean to everybody else in your life, and, and then you mistreat other people, and you think that everything is okay between you and me? Or, or you are fasting? You are spending a day of fasting, and then you're fighting with everybody else in your life, and you won't even stand up for those who are impoverished. You won't even help those people who are being mistreated, and you turn a blind eye. Somebody else will do it, you say, and you think that fasting matters to me. Now, here is God, and I'm listening to this, and I'm, I'm hearing this in light of this message, because here's the truth. Doing all the things we're doing today, yea, God, we're in church, we need to be, and all this, but he expects us to walk out of this place and live a Christian life on Monday. And he expects us to care about people who are poor and not turn a blind eye to them, but to help them, and those who are being mistreated, that we stand up with them. That we don't just ignore it. Well, it's not my problem. It's, it's not my issue. But we act like it is our issue because we're followers of Christ. And we, we have acts of love and kindness toward God and others. And we are living that kind of life. So what's the questions? First of all, what, am I, what do I think about? How do I know the purity of my heart? What do I think about most of the time? What's coming into my life? What am I hearing? What am I watching? What am I reading? Because if junk comes in, junk comes out. Number two, how do I use my money? Is it all for me? I, it's just about spending on me. It's just all about me. It's not about helping other people, uh, giving to God. It's, there's nothing about somebody other than me. It's what kind of people are my best friends. We need to be making friends with people who do not know Jesus as Savior, else how can we share Jesus with people who don't know Him? We need to build relationships and friendships with people who don't know Him. But the deepest 
relationships of our life need to be people who sharpen our life and who push us further and further toward God, who help us and raise us up, and we build our deepest relationships, not our only relationships, but our deepest relationships with those people. How do I treat others around me? Am I stinking up the place in my attitude? Am am I being mean to other people? Or am I giving acts of love and kindness toward others, even strangers, and toward God? And am I helping those who are impoverished and I'm not turning a blind eye and and I'm standing with those who have no one to stand for them? What real influence am I allowing the Bible to have in my life? Psalm 119 verse 9, how how shall a person cleanse his way, his or her way? By doing what God says in his word, by taking the Bible seriously. So how much are you living for him? One day we'll be judged according to the purity of our heart. The third is this. We will be judged according to our faithfulness in sharing Christ with others. I'm going to read you a passage that maybe you've never read. Maybe you just glossed over it when you, read, when you were reading the book of Ezekiel, but maybe it is never really locked in. Listen to the verse, passage. Son of man... This is God talking to Ezekiel. I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not warn him and speak to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, but I will hold you accountable for his blood. What? It's this picture of here, okay, here's a wall around Jerusalem, and you are a watchman or a watchwoman, and you are up there on the, the top, and you are looking out for the enemy coming. Oh, you see the enemy. You blow the, the alarm. No, you don't. You are sitting down just looking at your iPhone the whole time, and you don't even see. You're not even watching. They, you, you're just... And so they come up and nobody warned anybody. Or you see them and you say, look, I don't want to get involved. And he is using the idea of a watchman on a wall to say to Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman. And when I say to you, that guy needs Christ and you say nothing to him, I'm going to hold you responsible. His blood will be on you. Now, I know people say, that's Old Testament, come on, that doesn't, that's not the same now. Well, then why did Paul say these words in Acts chapter 20, verse 26 and 27? Therefore, I declare to you that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why did he say this? For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you, meaning all of you, the whole will of God. What is he saying? Paul is saying, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I did not stop up my mouth. I warned others that needed Christ. I shared Jesus with others. I was responsible as a witness of Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying. And maybe you're saying to me, maybe you're saying, I don't know how. I don't have the words. I, I Somebody... I, I, doesn't know Jesus. I don't even know what to say to them. I don't even know how to get started. Well, let me just tell you, we have a, a training 
called the Gospel Conversation Workshop that we do, and we do it regularly. The next one is in two Saturdays on the 29th of June. And we have trained 1,400. We've already trained over these last few years 1,400 people in our church about how to share their faith. In the most, you cannot believe how easy this is. You cannot believe you could, you'll walk out being able to do it. Being able to share, it makes total sense. It is the fastest thing you've ever seen, and it makes total sense, and you can share Jesus with somebody else. Come to the training. Come to the training. How do you find the training? I'm hoping it's there in, in your worship guide, and if it's not, go to the Next Step Center, and we'll get, let you know where it is. You can share your faith with others who need Him. We as Christians are going to be judged one day about the purity of our heart, about what we did with what God gave to us, about our willingness to invite people to church, our willingness to invite people to Christ. But there is a second thing that Jude says very quickly. Jesus will also judge every person who has rejected Him as Savior. Look at verse 15. Christ is coming to judge everyone and to convict. Now, this is a different word. Not He's not talking about Christ followers here. He's now talking about people who've rejected Jesus and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Did you notice the word ungodly? It's four times there. You can't miss this. And the ungodly in New Testament, all through the New Testament, is always talking about a person who's rejected Jesus as Savior ungodly because they've said, God, Jesus, no interest. Not now. Have not given their heart to Christ. Did you know that Jesus talks more about the subject of hell and he always addresses it as a real place, just as real as heaven, just as real as earth, as a real place. And he's the guy that talks more about hell than anybody else. So if you knew that an F5 tornado, an F5 tornado was headed right to the house of a member of your family or of a friend of yours, and you knew it, that an F5 tornado was headed right to that house, and you had time to get there, you had time to warn them, get them out of that place of danger, what would you do? Well, I tell you, I just don't, I don't want to get involved. I just, it's asking a little bit too much of me, I think. That is not what you do. I know what an F5 tornado is. I lived in Oklahoma City when the F5 tornado came a few years ago. There we were, Kathy and I, we were right glued to the TV like everybody else, and we were watching, and there were helicopters south of Oklahoma City away south of Oklahoma City, and there were helicopters by the weather people and stations, and they were taking pictures. We could see them. There were five tornadoes. I, I never, they said they've never even seen five tornadoes ever in the same location at the same time. Can you imagine what kind of storm that was? There were five tornadoes. We, they, would, they would move. There's one. There's two. We were stunned. There's three. There's four. And all of a sudden, in south Oklahoma City, they all came together as one tornado. And they 
became an F5 tornado. It's huge, huge, absolutely humongous. It is the scariest thing you've ever seen in your life. And as they're describing, okay, here's the trajectory of where it's going. It was coming right to our house. It was going north and right to our house. And they were saying, look, you got to get underground. You cannot go get in a in, in some closet somewhere, this is an F5. It will tear everything apart. You got to get underground. We didn't know where to go underground. You got to get underground. And here it comes, here it comes. It gets to the south, now part of Oklahoma City, and all of a sudden it changes direction. How does this happen? It changes the direction due east and it goes right through Moore, Oklahoma, and it destroys everything in its path. It is one mile wide, and every tree, every building, every anything and everything is gone when it leaves. One mile wide. When things settled down, Kathy and I got in the car, which you're not supposed to do, but we did it anyway, and we drove to Moore, and we could not believe our eyes. It was seriously like an atomic bomb had gone off. We'd never seen anything like it in our lives. That's what an F5 is. And what if the F5 was coming? towards someone you loved and you had time. And I'm telling you this, there is something bigger than an F5 that's coming toward those people you love. There is something more powerful than an F5 tornado that is coming toward people that are members of your family and people that you love and people that you work with. There is an F, something greater than an F5 coming. And the Bible says it is forever separated from God. That's what's coming. And there are passages in the New Testament that address this eternal separation from God. I've given those to you. And Jesus describes this place called hell as a place of physical, emotional, spiritual, and relational suffering. Revelation chapter 20 verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him that was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's great because I'm such a good person. I am sure that when he sees all the good stuff, he'll let me into heaven, but it's not going to turn out as good as you think. And the sea gave up the dead that were in them, and death and hell gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. And then death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown in the lake of fire. And the only way you can get your name in the Lamb's book of life is by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you have not, if you have not committed your heart to Him by faith, your name is not there. And in that day, there is no hope. And I'm pleading with you today, receive Jesus Christ as your Savior today, this morning. 
You may be saying, but it's 2,000 years have gone by. I mean, look, this is just an empty promise of him coming back. Jude 17 and 18 says, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. Who are these apostles? One of them is Peter. He is simply quoting Peter. Because in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, Peter says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. It's almost a verbatim. He simply, and he says, I'm quoting the apostles, and one of those is Peter, and it comes from, and notice what else Peter says. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. He's talking about the flood and everything was destroyed by the flood. But the same word, meaning that brought the flood, the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. Water before, fire this time. For fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. No time has gone by at all. God has a plan, and he plans to use this plan for his, his purposes. Don't be deceived just because 2,000 years has gone by. The famous comedian W.C. Fields was an agnostic uh, all of his life, the best I know. But when he was close to death, he was in the hospital, and a friend went to see him in the hospital. When the friend walked in to his hospital room, there was W.C. Fields reading the Bible. And his friend said to W.C. Fields, you're reading the Bible? And Fields said, I'm just looking for loopholes. But there's no loopholes. There's no loopholes. This morning, would you give your heart to Christ? Would you invite him into your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you. For the truth of your word, bless, Father, this day and use it to bring many to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.